everyone. Welcome to Truth or Demons podcast, recently known as Distinguishing Demons. So you may be wondering why the name change. It was a really great name. I really loved it. But admittedly, I'm not a great speller. And when someone would ask me the name of my podcast and I would tell them, most people would ask, how do you spell that? And then I'd be like, uh, I run a podcast. So here we are, a name change, a content overhaul. And now I would like to present to you Truth or Demons podcast which is dedicated to taking a deeper look into the paranormal universe and beyond. In season one, I will be dedicating each episode to an in-depth journey into the infamous ghost hunting duo, Ed and Lorraine Warren. In each episode, I will explore the work of the Warrens and all that goes with. From the history of the Warrens, to their cases, to pop culture, to any and all information I can dig up. I will do my best to find accurate, truthful information and debunk everything else. So, without further delay, here is episode one. Disclaimer, this podcast discusses subjects surrounding demons, demonic possessions, demonic presence, hauntings, and uncomfortable topics related. Please listen with caution. Do you ever sit and wonder how we got to where we are in our knowledge of the paranormal? Do you automatically think of demons when you think of a violent haunting, a dangerously haunted house, a possession, or an exorcism? Most of us do, right? It's always a demon, right? What if it was? Or maybe worse, what if it wasn't? What if some of the so-called demonic cases we've heard of were actually hiding a deeper truth? How do we know? How do we decipher truth from demons? That's a mission I've decided to take on. So thus we begin. This is episode one, The Warrens. Today I will be looking into the individual lives of Ed and Lorraine, their personal histories, how they met, and what led them to begin their extraordinary career. I've cited all my sources for reference in the show notes. And here we go. Bear with me. I wanted to be as thorough as possible on the backgrounds and histories of both Ed and Lorraine, and there's a lot to unpack here. There's many sources of information and many contradictions along the way. So hang in there as I try my best to sort through and present the available information as best I can. Let's start with Ed. On September 7, 1926, on a warm Tuesday in Bridgeport, Connecticut, a little boy entered the world and was given the name Warren Edward Miney. Born in Virgo to parents Frank Miney and Pauline Dennis in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Both of its parents were also born in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Its paternal and maternal grandparents, however, were immigrants. Both originally from Slovakia, according to one census record, but an earlier record states both sets of grandparents were from Austria. Why must records be so inconsistent? Anyways, before Ed was born in a 1920 census, his father Frank is documented as a prize fighter under occupation. It's actually spelled P-R-I-S-E on the record, but I'm assuming that was meant to say prize, just covering all the bases. Anyways, later census records state Ed's father was a guard. In interviews, Ed always refers to his dad as a policeman, and in The Demonologist, published in 1980, he says his dad was a Connecticut state trooper, and then a paragraph later he says his dad was a policeman. I'm pretty sure guards and policemen were different in 1942, but that's what the records say. And if super troopers taught us anything, police and state troopers are not the same. Ed's mother Pauline wasn't recorded to have worked until the 1950 census and was more than likely a stay-at-home mom until then. In the 1950 census, Ed's mother is also recorded to have worked as a guard. Both his parents' education stop at grade 6, according to records. Ed grew up with two siblings, his twin sister Babette and older brother Frank. I found a couple of photos of Ed and Babette and shared them on Instagram. 
His older brother, Frank Raymond Miney, was five years older. He passed on November 27, 1998. Ed's twin sister, Babette, also known as Babe Miney, passed on September 26, 1997. Ed outlived both his siblings, passing on August 23, 2006. A young Ed grew up in a standard suburban setting, in a typical home, in a typical family. Or did he? Ed is often asked in interviews what led to his interest in the occult and supernatural. He always talks of his childhood home and how it was haunted, having had his first ghostly encounter at age five. I've located what I believe to be Ed's childhood home. It's a large aging duplex or possibly quadruplex sort of building with two floors and a front porch slash balcony to each floor. Ed's family would have lived in one of the apartments if this is the correct building. Time and changes to the area make this hard to accurately determine. Ed remembers his first paranormal experience being while he was sitting in his bedroom, taking off his shoes one day after playing. Ed says the day was ending, and as the room grew dimmer with the sun setting, he saw a light materialize in the closet, and then it morphed into a human-sized apparition of what he described as looking like his landlady, who passed a year earlier. Ed said he was sure it was her after a moment. He remembered her very clearly as she would constantly scold the children of the building whenever they would play outside too loudly. Ed wasn't very fond of this woman. In some recounts, Ed says his twin sister Babe witnessed this alongside him. In others, it's just Ed by himself. Ed states he later tried to express to his father what he witnessed. But his father, a man of logic, according to Ed, very quickly dismissed Ed's story and told him, quote, Forget what you saw and never tell anyone. This quote can be found in the Warren's book, The Demonologist, which Ed and Lorraine co-wrote with author Gerald Brittle and published in 1980. Then there's Tony Spira, Ed's son-in-law and he has a different version of this account. Tony says Ed told him, My father said, Ed, there's a logical reason for everything that happens in this house. Then Ed says, My father never gave me a logical reason. I first saw this interview on the documentary Devil's Road, but it can also be found on the Warren's official YouTube channel. Ed claims he never told anyone about his experiences as they occurred in his home, but he never forgot them either. He spent a lot of time alone in that home, he remembers in different interviews. His parents always working and siblings always away for one reason or another. Later in life, right before his brother passed, Ed tells a story about Frank admitting something to him. Frank explained he was never home and always staying with friends because the house scared him. This was the one and only time Frank addressed this subject, according to Ed. Even though I can't find much else on Babette, Ed's twin sister, Ed does recount one other time they experienced phenomena when they were home alone together. Ed says they both could hear what sounded like footsteps and tapping of a cane coming up the stairs. Ed said it sounded similar to when his grandfather would climb the stairs every Sunday to come to breakfast, but his grandfather had long since passed. Ed then says his mother came in to comfort them after the experience. He found out later his mother wasn't actually in the house at all that evening. Ed believes an angel resembling their mother came to comfort them. His mother had been with their grandmother who had passed later that evening. The part of that story about Ed's mother manifesting as an angelic apparition while visiting their dying grandmother seems a bit far-fetched for me, but who knows? As far as Ed's childhood experiences, I can't say whether or not his home was legitimately haunted, but I can see how it would not be discussed a whole lot in that time. It was pretty taboo to speak seriously about anything ghostly or paranormal. Most people really feared these subjects. I can't find much other mention of where his sister was through these moments when Ed was experiencing these things in the home and he doesn't elaborate on her reaction to an angel impersonating their mother. But I do know that later in life, Babette found the Annabelle doll and story to be very scary. She passed stories on to children she babysat, according to one source I have. 
I wonder if she and Ed ever spoke more about hauntings or his life as a paranormal investigator. They were twins after all. Twins themselves are a bit paranormal adjacent, wouldn't you say? So once this occurred to me, I couldn't really stop thinking about it. During a deeper dive into my research, I also learned a little more about Ed's sister, Babette. She may not have been too keen on the idea of ghosts, but turns out her son, John Zaffis, is extremely into the idea. So much so that he also became a paranormal investigator, following in his late uncle's footsteps. He has an interesting story about Ed and Babette's twin connection on his Facebook page as the caption to a photo of Ed and his mother, Babe. If I can get permission to share, I will. It's a really neat story. I reached out to John, so hopefully I hear back. Now, let's explore a little more into Ed's life before his career in the paranormal world. As a young man, he worked as a lifeguard during the day and an usher in a movie theater at night. He tried to join the Navy at age 16, but he wasn't able to and ended up joining on his 17th birthday. In my research, I found a public document amending the year Ed was born from 1924 to 1926, and I'm wondering if when he attempted to join the Navy at 16, he changed his date of birth to make him 18 on record. It didn't work, though, if that was the case. But at 17, he officially joined and began his short career in the Navy. During his service, Ed claims he had a near-death experience that led to a realization that there were miraculous things in this world. He tells his son-in-law in an interview that in a moment of hopelessness, he said a prayer and a miracle happened. Ed remembers floating in his life jacket with another victim of the ship explosion clinging to his back as they were surrounded by fire. He says, quote, I said a prayer and the fire parted. Then Ed and the man clinging to his back, who could not swim according to Ed, made it out of harm's way to be rescued. This miracle seemed to be a driving force in his future career choice. Ed recounts this event a few times in different interviews. Details have changed throughout each one. Sometimes the man on his back jumped on him in a panic and nearly drowned him. Other times, Ed goes out of his way to rescue him because he couldn't swim. Details, Ed. Details. There are a few sources that discuss Ed's time in the Navy. In the book, The Demonologist, by Gerald Riddle and the Warrens, it is very briefly mentioned. Ed also discusses it on his son-in-law's YouTube channel in an interview conducted by Tony Spear himself. There's a clip of this video in the new documentary called Devil's Road, The True Story of Ed and Lorraine Warren. At the end of his naval career, he is given an honorable discharge and no more information is available. I did put in a request for his public records, so I'll report back if I'm able. Bonus episode, maybe? There's one more thing I came across during Ed's time as a Navy sailor that I'd like to cover, as I stumbled on it during a newspaper archive search and found it extremely interesting. While searching Ed's name in old newspapers, I came across this article. At first, I ignored it because it seemed to not be related to Ed. The search engine highlighted the name Warren Miney in the article, and I didn't automatically register the connection. But when I came across it again, I decided to click on it and read it. Here's what it said. It's titled, Borough Youth Claims Sailor Assaulted Him. Bridgeport, March 23rd. A teenage sailor was the object of a police search today after Lee Van Imberg, 17, of 40 Dutton Street, Wallingford, told police that he assaulted him in front of Chopsey Hill Road at 12.05 a.m. today. Van Amberg appeared in a diner in Orange shortly after 1 a.m. with a severe scalp laceration. He was taken to New Haven Hospital, where eight stitches were taken to close the wound. Van Amberg was later turned over to the patrolman Leon Denton and Frederick Vaughn, Bridgeport policemen. Van Amberg said a sailor, who he knew as Warren Miney, of 1466 East Main Street, Bridgeport, telephoned him and asked him if he would like to go to California. The complainant said he joined Miney and was taken to the Chopsey Hill Road section, where he alleges Miney assaulted and robbed him. 
Investigation police said that some of Van Emberg's belongings were found in Miney's parked car a short time later. Okay, so what caught my attention was the address linked to the Warren Miney character. I know from my research and reading multiple census records that that was Ed Warren's address in 1944. Ed was also a 17-year-old sailor in 1944. So, Ed, what's that all about? I tried to search for more information on this accusation, and since police did find Van Emberg's belongings in Ed's car, I thought for sure I would find something concluding the story. However, I found nothing. Nothing at all. I did learn the newspapers got Van Emberg's first name completely wrong. It was actually Lloyd, not Lee. Now, I originally assumed they meant Lee as it was spelled L-E-A-G-H, but according to Google, it would be pronounced League. I don't know how they confuse League with Lloyd, but the newspapers have never been known for spelling accuracy. So, Ed, what kind of youth were you? Not a very respectable one, according to this accusation, but unfortunately, we have no way of knowing the true facts of this encounter. The newspaper clipping is all we have and it will be posted on the Instagram for anyone who would like to have a look. When Ed returned from the Navy, it said he attended college to study art. This later plays a role in his ghost hunting. Painting was also his sole form of income after his discharge from the military, according to Ed. He wanted to paint landscapes with oil paints and sell them to tourists, and he did. He also sold his work at local events and art shows. In some cases, Ed painted for charity events as well. It's worth noting that Ed also supported himself with a job driving a bus. Some sources say a city bus, and some sources say a school bus. According to census records, it was a city bus. This is worth bringing up due to a topic of a future episode. A scandal, maybe? But for now, that's enough about Ed. On to Lorraine. Lorraine Rita Warren, born in Aquarius on a cold Monday in January on the 31st, 1927, in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Born to parents James Joseph Moran and Georgiana Marie Hamilton Moran, both also from Bridgeport. Both Lorraine's paternal and maternal grandparents were Irish immigrants. Lorraine's father, James, was a machinist in his early 20s and then became an assistant engineer in a power plant. Both Lorraine's parents attended school until the 8th grade and Lorraine's mom was also a stay-at-home mom from what I can gather. Originally in my research, I found Lorraine to be an only child of an Irish Catholic family. Then I came across an interview where Lorraine herself mentions having siblings. Lorraine mentions they moved back to Bridgeport from Milford when her brother was hit by a car and had to be hospitalized at St. Vincent's. In another interview, she makes reference to her brother and her sister. So after a little more digging, I found that she did have two younger siblings, and their information is private as they are still living. I did find a photo of a teenage Lorraine posing with her two younger siblings and her parents in an ancestry search. It's posted to the Instagram. Even though Ed and Lorraine grew up in the same town, a town of about 145,000 people, they wouldn't meet until they were teenagers. In one interview, Tony Spira, the Warren's son-in-law, marvels that the two lived just three blocks apart and wouldn't meet until years later. This is actually true according to the 1940 census. I shared a photo of the map of the neighborhood on Instagram. All right, who was Lorraine? What was she like? She said she knew from a very young age that she possessed different abilities and senses than those around her. Lorraine was also raised by a devout Catholic family, and she attended a strict Catholic girls' school called Laurelton Hall in Milford, Connecticut. In The Demonologist, the autobiography of Ed and Lorraine, Lorraine remembers her first realization that she was different, and not everyone shared her sixth sense. She says it was Arbor Day, and she was around the age of 12. She and her fellow students had gathered around to watch a young tree be planted. As it was placed in the earth, Lorraine says she suddenly saw the small tree reach full maturity right in front of her eyes. She even leaned her head back to stare up into the full-grown branches of the newly planted tree. 
A nun noticed this odd behavior in Lorraine and questioned her about it. She wanted to know why Lorraine was staring into the sky. When Lorraine answered her earnestly, the nun was not at all impressed. Lorraine quickly learned not to share such visions as she was swiftly whisked away to reflect and repent for an entire weekend. Now I learned that last bit of information from their book, but in a recent documentary, Lorraine also states in an interview that her recognition of her psychic abilities started at age nine when she began noticing different color lights or auras around the nuns running the school. She says she expressed noticing one nun, her French teacher, and how her lights were brighter than Mother Superior's lights and was quickly reprimanded and told not to speak of such things. And in another interview, she states she was seven the first time she realized her gifts. I've watched countless interviews with Lorraine, and her recounts of different things seem to alter slightly often for her as well. I don't know if these discrepancies are due to these stories being fiction or just the fact that we remember things throughout life differently and recount them over time differently as well. Anyways, I can't seem to find much more information about Lorraine's childhood and adolescence. She said she never seriously told her family of her abilities and mostly kept it to herself. If she did speak about it, it was in a joking manner and her family insisted it to never be taken as anything else. I'd like to pause here and take a moment to share a little something about this podcast sponsor. Hello everyone. Are you ready to embark on a magical journey into the world of nature's treasures? Look no further than Into the Woods Stones and Crystals. Discover the enchanting collection of stones and crystals that will ignite your spirit and elevate your well-being. At Into the Woods Stones and Crystals, they offer a treasure trove of Mother Earth's finest gems, all carefully handpicked to bring you positive energy and healing vibrations. Whether you're a seasoned crystal enthusiast or just beginning your crystal journey, they've got something for everyone. From amethyst to quartz, citrine to obsidian, each crystal is a unique masterpiece waiting to enhance your life. And if you listen to my interview on Creepy Chisma, you know how much I love obsidian. But that's not all. When you shop with them, you're not just buying crystals, you're investing in a deeper connection with nature. Their crystals are ethically sourced and sustainably harvested, ensuring they protect the earth as they share its precious gifts. And here's a special treat for you listeners. Use code TRUTHORDEMONS, all one word, at checkout to enjoy an exclusive discount on your purchase. Ready to bring a touch of magic into your life? Visit their website, into-the-woods-stones.myshopify.com. I'll put the link in the show notes. Explore their exquisite collection and don't forget to follow them on social media for updates, special offers, and crystal wisdom. I will put all links in the show notes. Into the Woods Stones and Crystals, where the magic of nature meets the power of your spirit. Shop now, enter Truth or Demons at checkout, and let the journey begin. And we're back. Where was I? Oh yes, boy meets girl. When Lorraine was 16 and Ed almost 17, Ed was working as an usher at a local movie theater called The Colonial. Ed says in an interview that Lorraine and her mother attended a movie there every week on Wednesday. However, again I found a contradiction. In the book Ghost Tracks, it states that Lorraine met Ed while attending the movie theater with girls from the St. Charles Christian Youth Group. Then, in an interview with Lorraine in 2009, she confirms the movie date with friends being the moment she met Ed. Nonetheless, Ed and Lorraine got to know each other and became friends. And one night, after walking her home, according to Ed, he decides to ask her out on a date. Actually, that's not necessarily the facts either. Lorraine and Ed both say in separate interviews that after the movie, Ed invited all the girls to go have a nickel Coke and Lorraine ordered an ice cream soda instead because she didn't like Coke. 
The ice cream soda was more expensive, and this led to Ed making the joke that he knew then she was a gold digger and continued to joke about that for the rest of their marriage, according to both of them. So after the Cokes and the ice cream soda Lorraine ordered, the girls along with Ed proceeded to walk home. He walked and talked with the girls, strolling backwards a few steps ahead of them so he could see them as he spoke. When they reached his house, he announces this is his and he runs across the street while waving goodbye. In that moment, Lorraine says she had a vision of Ed, not as the young boy she just met, but as an older, heavier-set, more mature man. She saw him as her husband. In one interview, she recalls he looked just as he looked right before he passed. Lorraine went straight home and wrote in her diary that night. On June 23, 1943, she writes, I'll spend the rest of my life with him. Now there's the warm romance we know and love from The Conjuring films. Not long after meeting, Ed enlisted and left to serve in the Navy. This made most of the early days of their relationship exist only through letters. I can only imagine what the letters might have said. I wonder if they talked this early about their experiences. Ed with his haunted house, Lorraine with her sixth sense. But Lorraine states in an interview that Ed never mentioned anything about his experiences in the early days of their relationship. So as they corresponded and their fondness for each other grew, Ed was still serving in the Navy amidst a war. Ed then endured the trauma of a shipping container explosion at sea and was then sent home on survivor's leave after his harrowing experience. He was treated for a head injury and the same moment Lorraine was recovering from surgery from a burst appendix. She fondly remembers hearing the news of Ed and was determined to get to him. She said, I had the doctor tape me up so I could go visit Ed. She said he was one of 69 survivors out of two ships and for a whole day he wasn't listed on the survivor's list. She was beside herself with worry and insisted she be able to leave to see him regardless of her own condition. But the doctor did as she asked, and she managed to get to her beloved Ed. Once home with Lorraine in his arms, with only a few hours to spare, Ed said, Lorraine, let's get married. And off they went. They were married May 22, 1945. So as I was researching this bit and watching the documentary and listening to Ed's interview, Ed says he had a 30-day leave. But Tony Spira, as he tells the story in an interview on a recent documentary, says Ed only had a couple of hours to get himself and Lorraine to the courthouse and get hitched. There's many inconsistencies in both personal and paranormal recounts, as you'll come to see on this journey. And soon you'll understand my frustration with the available information out there. Moving on. According to Tony, Ed and Lorraine embarked on an overnight honeymoon stay at a hotel in New Haven called the Taft Hotel. Ed left to return to the Navy the next morning. Or in 30 days, according to the interviews. Who really knows? His daughter Judy was born while he was still in active duty, and by the time he made it home, she was about six months old. Lorraine says Ed never saw her pregnant. That sucks. But Lorraine had her family, and Ed had his duties. Okay, now the fun part. The beginning of the Warrens' career as paranormal investigators. As soon as Ed completed his service in the Navy, he returned home to his wife and daughter and began supporting his family by selling his paintings and working various jobs, including driving a bus. Ed would go out and paint landscapes and sell them to tourists. Lorraine also had an interest in painting and supported the idea of living as artists. Somehow, at some point, Ed and Lorraine started exploring their interest in haunted homes. I can't find a clear starting point for this to even come about, but Ed wanted to paint haunted houses and then convince the owners, they, he and Lorraine, could help them rid their homes of these hauntings and disturbing activity. At first, Lorraine didn't really believe any of the haunting claims from the people they encountered but she decided after a few cases and their blatant similarities that there must be something to this. They would search local papers for stories of haunted homes, go to the home, and park outside and paint it. Ed proudly says in one of their books how he would tell Lorraine to get out of the car, 
then lock her out until she went up to the home to speak to the owners about their haunting. Am I the only one who finds this just a little strange? He locked her out of the car? He says he just knew with her Irish charm that she could convince the homeowners to let them in and discuss their haunting. He speaks a lot of how Lorraine's Irish charm could convince anyone of anything. Some sources say Ed would paint the homes, and in one interview, Ed says he would just do a quick sketch of the house and then make Lorraine take it to the door and explain why she had it and why they were there. Then wait for her to wave to him, signaling they had been invited in. So, by convincing the homeowner they understood their home was haunted and they could help, they began down a path no one could have predicted the outcome. They pulled the paint the house trick for about five years. Then their plight soon began to gain traction. This led to many haunting investigations led by Ed and Lorraine and the team they built over the course of their career. And eventually, television interviews and appearances. I will definitely be covering all of those as well. In Ghost Tracks, they claim to have investigated over 3,000 cases. If you Google it, Google says 10,000 cases. If that's true, the season of Truth or Demons will never end. <laughs> it is said that Ed accompanied Lorraine on all the investigations they pursued. There is a little controversy surrounding Ed's role in the investigations. I can't pinpoint the exact moment Ed began referring to himself as a demonologist, but in interviews, he repeatedly expresses he was just born a demonologist. He did not seek it out or plan to be one. He just was. It also claims he was recognized by the Catholic Church as a demonologist as well. In a later episode, we will explore and address all aspects of demonology and what makes a demonologist legit, and what makes Ed so sure he was meant to be one. We'll look into whether or not he was actually recognized by any churches as such. In the early 50s, the Warrens established the New England Society of Psychic Research. This will also be an episode all in itself. I will briefly cover this now and take a deeper look into it later. The New England Society of Psychic Research is listed on Google as a museum located in Monroe, Connecticut, a.k.a. their Museum of Paranormal Items, a.k.a. their home. The Warrens established this Society of Psychic Research in 1952, and it became a mecca for all ghost hunters and paranormal researchers over the years. Many people in the parapsychology field still hold this organization in very high regard. Now that Ed and Lorraine have both passed, their son-in-law, Tony Spira, is in charge of operations. You can find information on the New England Society of Psychic Research on his website. He also maintains and runs a YouTube channel dedicated to the Warrens and their work. The Warrens became a household name in no time. With multiple television appearances, legal involvements in outrageous accounts of demonic possession, claims of performing exorcisms, and being involved in some of the most notorious paranormal cases most of us are all familiar with today. When I say most of us, I mean those of us interested in anything and everything weird and or paranormal a.k.a. you lovely people listening. For a lot of us, Ed and or Lorraine may have turned us on to the occult and such related things, despite whether or not they were honest, humble ghost hunters or simply out to find fame and fortune. The Warrens paved quite a path into the unknown. They claimed to never have charged for their services, only asked for travel and lodging expenses to be covered. They are repeatedly emphatic about this fact. However, if you step back and take a look at the bigger picture, like Ed more than likely did, you'll see where the money came in and just how much. I believe Ed was smart and also a bit of a con artist. He saw an opportunity to corner a money-making endeavor in a way no one else had done yet. He built the facts as he discovered them and had everyone eating out of the palm of his hand. Well, not everyone. There were a few throughout time that would challenge the Warrens and their so-called abilities and involvements. And I know I'm not the only one out there that had wondered about the truth behind the Warrens with the release of the films and the stories being so far from the alleged truths. We will explore all of this in coming episodes and more. I might even throw in some interviews, guests on the show, and even a scandal. 
Before I end this episode, I have one more bullet to cover. This tidbit plays a huge role in my decision to take on this mission to tell the facts behind one of the most infamous couples in paranormal history. The Warrens started their ghost hunting journey in the late 40s, early 50s, but their first recognized and sensationalized case in 1970 has become a cult classic via Hollywood silver screen. There's loads of questions surrounding this so-called haunting case. There's theories supporting it and theories debunking it. There's eyewitness accounts, yet no record of said witnesses or accounts. There's exaggerations over time and the motivation of fame and fortune lingering in the background. Next time on Truth or Demons, we'll investigate the supposed true case of Annabelle, the Haunted Doll. Thank you for joining me for my first episode and for coming back for the relaunch. And if you're new to the show altogether, welcome. If you'd like to get a jump on the next episode, go watch the Annabelle series. I'll be covering them and comparing them to the Warrens' quote, true accounts and explaining why things don't really make sense. Like why the doll in the movie is nowhere near the same as the Raggedy Ann doll we all know to be the actual Annabelle doll. I'll be wrapping up here, but I wanted to do a quick thank you shout out to everyone who's helped inspire and motivate me into creating this podcast. First and foremost, I'd like to thank my mom. If it weren't for her, not only would I not have any interest or knowledge of the paranormal, but also I never would have questioned the Warrens and their work. So thanks, mom. I'd also like to give a huge shout out to so many podcasts for inspiring me to create my own. A special thanks to Grace from What's Blood Got to Do With It, the podcast lore, it being the first podcast I ever got hooked on. Aaron Mankey is the best. The podcasts, and that's why we drink, and real life ghost stories. You all have inspired me so much with your content. And also, a podcast that was new when I started this journey and has grown so much since, Creepy Chisma, hosted by Lori. When I discovered her podcast, I finally developed the courage to give mine a go because of the way she presented herself as a new podcaster and dove right in. She gives off the chillest vibes, and I love it. Thanks for making me feel like I could finally jump in and just do it too. And congratulations on your podcast growth. I'm so excited for you. And then a special shout out and thanks to the women over at Creeps and Crimes podcast. After meeting Morgan and Taylor at a recent And That's Why We Drink live show, I was completely re-inspired and motivated to get back on this horse and really give it my all. So thank you, ladies. Thank you to my beautiful friend, Amanda, who is Taylor's cousin, for being my day to the show. It wouldn't have been the same without you. Hell, I probably wouldn't even have gone. And for introducing me to Taylor and Morgan. I had the best time at dinner and the show was great. Thank you, lady. Also, my boss. I have the coolest boss ever, guys. She gave me my amazing job in 2019, and I've loved every minute of working for her. And since I work from home, I can work on my podcast research while I do my work. It's pretty awesome. And she's insanely encouraging when I share my outside endeavors with her. So thank you, Christy. Best boss ever. Also, all my friends who put up with me blowing up their inboxes every time I discover something new in my research. The support from you guys is absolutely the best. And finally, my boyfriend. His patience with my need to have a thousand and one projects going all at once and all at the same time is a superpower. His support and encouragement means more to me than he'll ever know. Thank you, babe. So that about does it for this episode, I suppose. Don't forget to like, follow, and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Also, follow me on Instagram at Truth or Demons Podcast for photo updates related to episodes. Rate and review if you enjoyed yourself and invite your friends to listen to. Thanks, guys. Research for this episode was done by me. Editing and sounds by Brandon Little, a.k.a. Metal and More Soundscapes, on Instagram. So, 
If you're still there and want to join me for a little silliness, I thought I'd do an extra little bit of fun at the end of each episode. Either a funny anecdote or something fun and lighthearted related to the Warrens or their pop culture. So I thought today, since we discussed how they met, I would look up their astrological compatibility and give them a little reading. Here we go. I pulled this from www.keen.com, Virgo male and Aquarius female compatibility. Putting Virgo and Aquarius together is usually a case of opposites attract. She lets her imagination run wild, but he rules his life with logic. She takes most things in stride, but he worries about the details. So far, that sounds about right. If it's in the cards for them to meet, the Virgo man will likely make the first move. (laughs) Ed made the first move. Aquarius women never really set out to look for love, but her social butterfly status brings many opportunities to connect with others. She's no wallflower, so he'll notice that she's a person who can hold her own. Because a Virgo man likes women who can think for themselves, he will want more. In turn, the Aquarius woman is instantly drawn to the Virgo's intellect. Although he is quiet by nature, he has countless opinions about art and music and about how to solve humanity's toughest problems. Sounds like Ed, doesn't it? Because the Aquarius mind is like a sponge, she will soak up his ideas and admire his worldview. A Virgo man has the potential to quench the Aquarian thirst for knowledge, giving the two a great chance at compatibility. Is or was harmony in their future? The downside to a Virgo man's plentiful thoughts is that he can have way too much. He tends to analyze all possibilities, which leads him to get lost in the details. He'll worry about the little things that don't even have the significance to show up on her radar. When it comes to this area, especially when it's about handling money or making plans, they will clash. Interesting. The Virgo man will soon come to realize that an Aquarian woman doesn't have the energy to pick through everything with a fine-tooth comb. She wants a mate who can roll with the punches and doesn't waste time with worry. Aquarians need to be free, and she enjoys the unpredictable. She'll break the budget, she'll run off on a whim, and she'll dance to the beat of her own drum. Lorraine sounds like she was a fun lady. The deeper these two get into their relationship, the Virgo man will most likely find red flags in the Aquarius woman's seemingly unsteady behavior. She's here, there, and everywhere. And the same goes for her moods. Aquarius, on the other hand, might begin to find Virgo man boring. If you love an Aquarius, you love her for her quirky charms. She doesn't like normal, because where's the fun in that? Good thing Ed was a bit quirky too. The good thing is, there will always be room for balance. If the Virgo man understands the Aquarian woman's need for freedom, he'll let her have it. But he'll also be her voice of reason and will provide a stable foundation. He'll also take care of the bills and the money, as long as she does her part in being responsible. And she could really use some caution every once in a while just as long as she doesn't take Virgo's rhyme and reason as a way to dampen her spirit. In the bedroom, an Aquarius woman's and a Virgo man's polar energies will work to bind them together, creating epic bursts of intimacy. She's more likely to deviate from his traditional ways of lovemaking, but he'll be eager to explore her deepest desires. In fact, a Virgo man has a naughty side that people don't expect from his quiet demeanor. Oh boy, stay tuned to see how that tidbit is relevant later. And yes, Virgo does like to take it slow and steady, but he won't stop there. He'll bring on the spice once he figures out the deepest desires of his Aquarian lover. It won't take long for these two to find their perfect tempo. After all, Virgo likes to give, and an Aquarius woman isn't afraid to voice her needs. Learning and loving each other. When you take it outside the bedroom, Virgo men and Aquarius women do have a lot to work on in terms of their personalities. She's excited by change, yet he prefers the predictable. She hates being told what to do, but he's a perfectionist who likes things a certain way. And she will make her anger known, but he avoids confrontation at all costs. 
it's pretty confrontational if you ever watch his TV appearances. If you're wondering if Virgo men and Aquarius women ever survive these differences, they most certainly can. The first step is to use their strengths to elevate their relationship. There is always a level of compromise and respect required in all partnerships, and these two already have an advantage by being naturally inclined to consider the needs of others. If Aquarius, an air sign, truly understands Virgo, she will respect her partner's need for stability and blow her winds of change in small doses. And if he knows her needs for excitement, he'll allow Aquarius to flutter off to new adventures as long as she gives him the confidence that he has nothing to worry about. As far as his perfectionism, an Aquarius woman can deal with it as long as the Virgo man isn't offensive or overbearing. He can bring ideas and implement structure, but he has to remember that he's part of a team. As long as he doesn't condescend, she will be open to his ways of doing things and she might even consider them innovative. This could be a win-win for both since Aquarius loves thinking outside the box. In terms of conflict, there is also a lot to learn. With her tendency to bottle things up and his habit of avoiding confrontation, temperatures are usually at the boiling point when they finally decide to address their issues. An Aquarius woman will show rage and she can be extremely sarcastic and hurtful with her words and actions. When she is angry, a Virgo man must not take her outbursts personally and he must not let this emotional side cloud his ability to forgive. On the other hand, Aquarius must be very careful not to wound Virgo's extremely sensitive personality to a breaking point. Sometimes, there are words and actions that you can't take back. If both are committed to make it last, the future is bright for a Virgo man and an Aquarius woman. By focusing on the positive, learning from their faults, and working towards love against all odds, these two will have enough strength to sustain a healthy relationship that has the perfect balance of excitement and stability. Rest in peace, Ed and Lorraine Warren. <laughs>